about um, Christ's sacrifice. Um, so I'm going to read first a bit from uh, Romans 12, um, and then from Romans 15. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then chapter 15, beginning at verse 14. I myself feel confident about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Nevertheless, on some points I have written to you rather boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to boast of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to win obedience from the Gentiles by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and as far around as Illyricum I have fully proclaimed the good news of Christ. Thus I make my ambition to proclaim the good news, not where Christ has already been named, so that I do not build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him shall see, and those who have never heard of him shall understand. This is the reason that I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, I desire, as I have for many years, to come to you when I go to Spain. For I do hope to see you on my journey and to be sent on by you once I have enjoyed your company for a little while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem in a ministry to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to share their resources with the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do this, and indeed they owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material things. So when I've completed this, and have delivered to them what has been collected. I will set out by way of you to Spain, and I will know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in earnest prayer to God on my behalf, that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my minister to Jerusalem may, may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. The God of peace be with all of you.
present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Because that's your spiritual worship. The grace has been given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Anything about any of that that strikes anybody? Any Gentiles present? <laughs> that probably covers nearly everybody. So, are you about to say something? Another new experience. Speak. Uh, well, I just think after doing our readings in this class, like, it's hard for me to actually still apply the same, my same idea of offering our bodies as a living sacrifice after reading the paper and and the references, like... I but, you, but in your posting, you said something about that, uh, which sounded like the opposite. That is, you said something like, is this idea of, it wasn't you, about sort of giving ourselves to God as a sacrifice, is that just a piece of evangelical kind of spirituality theology? Exactly, that was my question. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and surely this is your answer. I mean, yeah, Paul is saying, no, that's, no, that's not, um, that's, that's, that's what Paul says in Romans 12, isn't it? That, that we give ourselves to God as a sacrifice. You're, now, now we're dealing with questions. I fell into a trap there. <laughs> we'll talk about that later on. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. I, well, you laid the trap. I fell into it. Yeah, it's, well, we've been doing that since the Garden of Eden, you know. It's, uh, where's the apple, I want to know. Um, thank you. Thank you. Is that ironic? Sarcastic. Very, and I deserve it, too. Um... But, but the, the, surely there, yes, in Romans 12, I mean, the, well, okay, here is the answer to the question in a way, that, that one, of the things, one of the things I hoped that would come home um, uh, through, that, through that paper is that whereas we think about sacrifice usually in very narrow terms um, uh, as a way of thinking about uh, atoning sacrifice, if you like, putting th things getting put right um, between us and God, um, neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament uh, thinks entirely in those terms. Uh, and the significance of those Old Testament sacrifices uh, is actually more to do with them being an expression of giving yourself to God. And, and that's Paul's point uh, in Romans 12, that sacrifice is us giving ourselves to God. Not because that affects atonement, of course. He would turn in his grave if he thought I was implying that. But on the contrary, the, the way the chapter begins is with the, there, the therefore at the beginning is very significant in that connection. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. If you like, because Christ has offered his sacrifice for you, and you're therefore right with God, therefore, you offer your sacrifice to God. And the logic of that is similar um, to that in Exodus. Somebody was waving at me. I you again? You, the, 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 you can't hear me. You knocked your microphone down. And Thank you. 
wave my arms, things. Now, which is the one? That's the one that amplifies. Yes, that's right. Uh, is that any better? You see, it's the problem, it's, um, it's wearing what, a shirt with a collar. That's the problem. I'm really shocked. Yeah, well, I, you know, yes. It's, um, the, 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 the guys who put this stuff on the website were kind of complaining uh, about um, uh, noises. Uh, last time must have been whenever it was Monday last week, um, and it's because I was wearing a shirt with a collar. It just shows the shoe. Everyone, shirts with collar. Let's get back to um, yeah, proper t-shirts. Where was I? Yes, um, yes. That 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 Paul's point. Paul, of course, uses sacrificial language to describe what Christ has done for us, but then um, picks up in good Leviticus fashion the sacrificial language to to express um, a response to God. Um, but then what, he's got to, what he then says about the Gentiles is what's more kind of mind-blowing, I think, more mind-expanding. But here are we as a collection of Gentiles, and the, the object of spreading the gospel amongst Gentiles like us is so that we can be offered to God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles that is the offering that consists of the Gentiles, and then the offering that the Gentiles offer, may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So, so we, we are a sacrifice offered to God. Um, we offer ourselves, but as it were, we offer ourselves on the basis of uh, already having been offered. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. and, um, I don't know, it's kind of been ministering to my soul because my dad is in the ministry and he always prayed. I'm the girl, I'm the firstborn, and my brother is second. And my dad always prayed that one of his children would go into ministry and it happened to be me and I'm the firstborn. Not that my brother isn't awesome too, but um, we've had some controversies over the fact that I'm the girl going into ministry. <laughs> um, but I don't know, it just it feels very meaningful to me. Mm. That's neat. Thank you. Yeah. Mm, that's good. Mm -hmm. Paul did get burnt up, didn't he? I mean, sacrifice is a, it's a very serious metaphor. It's, it's, it's only a metaphor, but you should never put the word only before the word metaphor. Uh, uh, I mean, it, it, he, does, he talks about it. It's a spiritual sacrifice, um, and yet he's talking about offering your body. So it's, it's not that we just offer sacrifices, as it were, in our emotions or in our feelings or something like that. We're offering our whole persons, including our bodies, to God. And, and when we do that, um, it's, it's at least quite likely that, that sacrifice will be involved. And, it's certain, and as I say, it certainly was for Paul, wasn't it? That, that for Paul to be involved in a priestly ministry involved huge sacrifice um, for him. Um, 
it's more that kind of sacrifice than, um, than the sin offering kind. Well, I'll come back and talk about th th these a bit more later on. But, um, but it's, it's that the, the whole burnt offering, is the, the whole thing is given over to God. Um, and, and so we, we are wholly given over to God. Uh, we wholly give ourselves to God in response to God's wholly being given over to us. Um, accepting the risk, if we can face the risk. Um, acknowledging the risk involved in doing that. Oh, that's getting scarier than I thought, thought it was going to be, really. Um, whatever this is, I thought it was appropriate at the time. I don't quite remember whether it still is. Oh, that'll be all right, won't it? Yes. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There's a precious fountain, free to all a healing stream, flows from Calvary's mountain. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever, till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. Near the cross a trembling soul, love and mercy found me. There the bright and morning star sheds its beams around me. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever. Till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. Near the cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me. Help me walk from day to day with its shadows o'er me. In the cross, in the cross be my glory ever, till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. Near the cross I'll watch and wait, hoping, trusting ever, till I reach the golden strand just beyond the river. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever, till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. Gracious God, we acknowledge the wonder of the healing stream that flows from the cross and of the price that Christ was willing to pay for us. And we pray that you will draw us in our recognition of that into being willing to offer ourselves to you with all the risk that's involved in that. We ask that you'll be with us this evening and help us to appreciate some more of who you are and what you have done for us so that we may also appreciate and respond to the expectations you have of us to give ourselves for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, now, in the in the video that you watched that you watched last week, um, if I'm right, the, the 
I didn't get to the end of the section on the law's theological nature and function and undergirding. Um, and in terms of the page numbers that you've got now, we'd be on page 87. Uh, page 86 says law, and then later on on page 86, the law's theological nature or function or undergirding. And I think I did the first four points on there. I did theological ethics in the form of law. Does that sound right? I see a nod. Woo! Okay. Uh, so I'll do numbers 5 to 10, and then we'll move into the stuff that's, uh, that's, uh, that's set down for tonight. Thank you for your, for your support and um, so on. Uh, I, um, I duly, uh, um, I was going to say fled, <laughs> flew <laughs> uh, to London on uh, Wednesday night, Thursday morning. Um, and we had the, the second memorial service for Anne uh, in my son Stephen's church, not the church he's the rector of, the church he belongs to, um, on Friday. And uh, a fabulous reunion with um, people who I'd been in the youth fellowship with 50 years ago uh, and uh, people who'd been um, fellow medical students of Anne's 45 or so years ago um, and uh, former students from the seminary in Nottingham and former colleagues from the seminary in Nottingham and as well as members of the family. Uh, and... Um, and on Saturday, we, we went to um, the valley in the middle of England uh, to the, had lunch in the hotel where we um, stayed at the beginning of our honeymoon um, and walked up the, uh, the river valley and scattered Anne's ashes. Um, uh, and that was, um, that was all very... Um, a strange mixture of being wrenching, gut-wrenching, and um, joyful. Um, one thing that's that's come home. Well, one or two things have come come home to me. I mean, I'm very aware that um, when when somebody when somebody when somebody has something happen, somebody's bereaved. Um, uh, Everybody's instinct is immediately to um, express their concern. Uh, I, I'm, um, various people try to bring me food, which seemed to me to be a very weird thing, weird thing to do, but I've just discovered that this is a US custom, so now I understand. Um, I mean, every culture has its customs. Uh, and, um, but kind of paradoxically, when now that these two weeks are over, um, for, ever, for people in general, it's past, but for me, it's, it, I'm very aware that today is the beginning um, of finding out what life is about. Um, and I'm not asking you to, I'm not saying to that to you in order that you should do something from, in relation to me, but I think that, that's come home to me, and I suspect it's very, that's very uh, kind of regular and normal. And so when you're... Um, involved with people who've had a loss or something, remember that there's a sense in which in the first week or two are tough in a particular way, but the weeks and months uh, that follow um, uh, are tougher in a way, in their own way. And the other thing is that, um, that, I, that, I, that, that 
lots of people sent lots of different kinds of messages. Um, the, the messages um, in emails and on the phone and in, in letters and on cards and so on that I appreciated miles more than any of the others were the things that said concrete things about Anne, uh, about how they remembered this or that, or that, that she was this, or she had been that, and things like that. Um, and I'm kind of standing back from it. I've, I've, I've been struck by the way in which it's, it's that that has kind of ministered to me and uh, encouraged me. Uh, okay, the, <clears throat> these, uh, these last few points then about um, the uh, theological nature or function um, undergirding of law. Um, number five, uh, the, the, the nature of the law is to set some boundary markers to identify the edges of the community. Um, on a number of occasions, the law talks about being cut off. Uh, and as far as one can tell, it doesn't mean that's not, a, that again is a metaphor, if you like. It doesn't mean they're going to be executed or they're going to literally uh, be thrown out of the community. Uh, but, but rather it indicates that you're, you're beyond the edges of what's um, acceptable within this community. And if you like, you're in danger of God cutting you off from it. The, the things, for instance, in the Ten Commandments about you must, you must do this, that, and the other. Here's some basic things. Yahweh alone, no images, keep the Sabbath, don't commit adultery, don't murder, and so on. They're pretty basic things, really. Uh, the law as a whole is a set of basic fulfillable requirements. In Deuteronomy 30, uh, Moses talks uh, about the basic nature of the law. It's not, it's not that demanding. It functions then as a set of boundary markers. Number six, it, fun it functions as a canon and thus a criterion for judgment. Uh, the word canon is a Greek word, uh, if you spell it with a K anyway. Um, note that it's got two ends and not three ends. Uh, a canon is, is a, it, the, the, the word canon in Greek is the word for a ruler. Um, and so a canon is, is something that you measure other things by. Uh, the, the prophets, uh, in effect, are the guys who treat the law as a canon, as a ruler. They apply this ruler to Israel's life, and they see that it doesn't, the two don't match. Um, and that's the basis, then, for, for God coming to act um, in judgment upon the people. Uh, in, within the context of the Torah itself, the law is there to say, this is what you ought to go and do. Within the context of the prophets, you're looking backwards, and the prophets are saying, you, you were supposed to do this, and you didn't. And so the uh, law becomes the explanation for, for in particular, uh, why the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom are taken off into exile. The law is a canon, and thus a criterion for judgment. Number seven, the law is the, le is the legal version of the wisdom of the sages. That is, if you look at the kind of things that, that, the, that a wisdom book, particularly such as Proverbs, talks about, then you'll find it talking about the same kind of things as the, as the Torah talks about. It'll talk about concern for your neighbor. It'll talk about um, messages you get into and how to solve them and so on. Uh, what the Torah does is set the kind of teaching you've got in Proverbs uh, in the context of the covenant relationship. 
it's, it, it isn't in that context in Proverbs. There's no mention of the covenant. It's just there as things that you ought to do. Indeed, um, there's a theological point that emerges from that. The theology uh, of the, the, back, the backing uh, for this teaching in Proverbs is more something like the nature of creation than the nature of the covenant relationship between God and Israel. So if you put that those two together, the law is a revelation of how to live by creation. Uh, and Exodus 20 kind of hints at that uh, at one or two points in, in the Ten Commandments. Uh, specifically, uh, when it talks about creation, it talks about the Sabbath. The reason why you observe the Sabbath is that there's something there about the, about the nature of God's relationship with the world and the way that God went about creating the world. The Torah is the, the legal version or the covenant version of the kind of wisdom that you get taught uh, by the wise characters who lie behind the wisdom of Proverbs. It's a revelation of how to live by creation. Um, it's absolute, but it's adaptable. I won't say more about that now because that will come out in some things I'm going to say later on. That needs some explanation, but I won't try and do that now because I will come back to that. It becomes, number nine, a revelation of humanity's problem and, and, and humanity's need of a new creation. Now, um, there's a kind of contra a contradiction here, you, you could think. Uh, I said just now that it's a set of, the law is a set of boundary markers. The kind of things it tells you to go and do are th not that demanding. It's not so difficult to avoid worshipping other gods and avoid worshipping by means of images and keeping the Sabbath and not committing adultery and not committing murder. It's not, not so demanding, you might have thought. And yet Israel was hopeless at it. Would, would I say that we are hopeless at it too? Um, in the sense of like serving other gods as in putting something else above God or... Right, yeah, in that, in that, in that, yes, in that kind of sense. Um, yeah, that, that, that a number of those um, in the, the strict uh, sense of the commandments, uh, then we um, are, probably, uh, are, are not too bad at it. But, but if you stretch the commandments in that kind of way, then we know ourselves to be uh, failures too. Though uh, the, the point, um, if you ask that question of Paul, uh, then I think the kind of way in which he talks in, um, in Romans uh, 7 uh, would be his way into looking at that. That is, it's not the first, the, first na the first nine commandments, quite a lot, you might be able to claim that you, um, that you keep. But it's the tenth commandment that kicks you, kicks you in the ass. Um, you shall not covet. Um, the, 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 things that, the things it says earlier on, uh, are, at least in the outward sense, it's not so difficult. But the Tenth Commandment is interesting because it suddenly pierces you to the heart. Um, and, and that's the commandment that surely underlies the terrible financial mess that the entire Western world is in um, over the last year or so. It's coveting um, that is the reason why uh, we're in the terrible mess we are with economics and recession and whatnot. Um, and uh, it's coveting that it was Paul's, is, it, it's significant that it's that um, command that Paul refers to in Romans 7. Um, uh, when, when he picks out uh, one of the commands um, and says, um, refers to, you shall not covet, in Romans 7 verse 7. 
sin seizing an opportunity in the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Now, I think the same would have been true for Israel, that there were commandments that Israel managed to keep okay. Uh, there were ones that we might think uh, it was easy to resist, but they weren't very good at resisting uh, for contextual sort of reasons, probably. Uh, maybe the, there were things, perhaps, that they were better at that we would be not very good at. But one way or another, um, they, the, the, the fact that they didn't find it possible to avoid worshipping other gods, uh, avoid worshipping by means of images, keep the Sabbath, and so on, um, was what the prophets saw as uh, revealing their, the, the people's need. It was only going to be if, something, if God did something radical to the people, apart from simply declare those expectations, that something was going to change. There was a need of a new creation. Jeremiah 31 thus talks about God's expectations being written on people's minds or hearts. Or Ezekiel 36 talks about them being given a new heart or a new mind. Note that the prophets don't think that they need to be given a new law. There was nothing wrong with the law. What was wrong was the, was, what was, what was, wrong was the people who weren't obeying it. Um, now, the New Testament then sees those pro that particularly that promise uh, about the new covenant being fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, and uh, that's a uh, meaningful, helpful way of seeing something of what God does um, when, God's, when God pours out his Holy Spirit on the church. <coughs> Though there are a couple of things that probably that need saying about that so that we don't kind of absolutize that. On the one hand, as your question just now indicated, um, when we look around at one another and when we look in our own hearts, we don't see uh, an ongoing um, flawless uh, obedience. We don't, we don't see the evidence uh, in the church's life that God's expectations are simply written into us and that we obey them. Um, and so in that sense, we mustn't exaggerate the distinction about us over against the, uh, the old covenant. And the other is the extraordinary change that came about, uh, came over the Jewish people in the period after the exile, in which you could say, in effect, God promised through Jeremiah and Ezekiel, <coughs> excuse me, that God would um, give them a new heart. And God did, actually. Because after the exile, they, they got out of the habit of worshipping other gods. They got out of the habit of worshipping by means of images. They did keep the Sabbath and so on. If anything, their problem went kind of another way. But the, the polemic in the New Testament, you don't find Jesus criticizing the Jews for worshipping other gods or worshipping by means of images or not keeping the Sabbath. The problem has almost become the opposite. They've become obsessional about the Sabbath, or some of them have. Uh, but you can see ways in which God's expectations of them have actually been written, in, written into their hearts. The new covenant has come about in that period after the exile. Um, the law then, a revelation of humanity's problem and humanity's need of a new creation. It's as God does something to, to people's uh, minds and spirits that they come to be drawn into obedience. In what sense is the law still binding on us? Uh, we'll do, we'll, I'll talk some more about this uh, as we come to, to look at, for instance, at, at Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Um, someone in, in uh, there was a question that arose on last Wednesday along the lines of, do we simply interpret the law symbolically or something? What kind of purchase uh, does it have on us? And I'd say something like this. If you take again some of the things that Jesus says about the law. Jesus says that 
that the law and the commandments all um, hang upon, they're all expositions of, you shall love the Lord your God and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, now, if that's so, then what you've got in the law is lots of illustrations of what it means to love God and to love your neighbor. Now, they are illustrations um, uh, rather than uh, something legalistic. Uh, if that we, they, they, the law doesn't bind us as law. Indeed, um, if given that, that we are, uh, nearly all of us, all of us probably, Gentiles, the law never bound us. It was not addressed to us. Our ancestors were not there at Sinai. We don't belong to the Jewish people in that sense. The law was never binding on us. And if it had been, if we are Jews, then it ceased being bind binding on us in Christ. But that doesn't mean it stops being the word of God. Those things that I read to you at the beginning of the course about all scripture being given by God and profitable for instruction and correction and training in righteousness and so on, those, that applies to the law. Because these commands that God gave Israel were not random. God didn't just think of uh, 700 things that he could tell the Israelites not to do uh, in order to discipline them or something, but it, they could have been 700 totally different things. Uh, they, are, they were expressions uh, of God's concern for love and mercy and justice, fairness, protection, and so on. So that in, in different um, contexts, different social contexts, uh, it would still be to be expected that if we can see how those commands of God were designed to shape Israel's life in their social context, we might be able to extrapolate and see um, how they uh, would have some purchase upon us. Not binding on us as law, but providing us with um, illustrations of how, uh, of what God expects of his people, uh, that then we can set alongside the uh, illustrations that also are very contextual uh, in the New Testament. Okay, let's now go on to, um, uh, as we were, tonight's stuff. So I'm turning on now uh, to... Um, page 92, the origin of the teaching in the Torah. The thing I want to illustrate uh, in, on page 92, the origin of the teaching of the Torah, is the way in which there uh, are topics that keep recurring in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy um, and see what that might imply uh, about where this teaching came from. So, at Sinai, uh, first you get in the Ten Commandments a set of ten basic principles which include the observance of the Sabbath. And then in, ex in the rest of Exodus 20 to 23, you get a set of instructions for worship and everyday life which you could call living in covenant. Uh, and amongst the issues that the four chapters cover are uh, the problem of people getting into debt and ending up in servitude, uh, the observance of Sabbath and the three annual festivals, um, the importance of not boiling a kid goat in its mother's milk, not one of your greater temptations, um, uh, and what will be the fruit of obedience or of disobedience. Uh, then in Exodus 25 to 31 you get um, instructions about how to uh, build the tabernacle, the wilderness dwelling, and how to set up the priests. In Exodus 34, you get another set of, of basic principles, which if you're clever, you can make into ten. Uh, and amongst them are instructions for observing the Sabbath and, and observing the three festivals, 
and a repetition of the command about not boiling a kid goat in its mother's milk, which you haven't had much ch chance to do since chapters 20 to 23. Anyway, uh, in Leviticus, um, in the, the first uh, two-thirds, you get directions regarding sacrifice and regarding um, cleanness and uncleanness, or cleanness and stain, or cleanness and, and taboo, and about the Day of Atonement. And then in the rest of Leviticus, another set of instructions for worship and everyday life, which you could call living in accordance with holiness. Because God is, God is here saying, uh, you must be holy as I am holy, and this is how that spells out. And amongst the issues that get covered in these ten chapters are um, the problem of people getting into debt and ending up in servitude, the observance of the Sabbath and the three, festi three annual festivals, and then what will be the fruit of obedience uh, and the fruit of disobedience. That's all. That's Sinai. Then in Numbers 15 to 19, when the people are on their way from Sinai uh, to the Promised Land, you get some miscellaneous instructions, and at the end of Numbers you get some more. Uh, in Deuteronomy, then you get a vast exposition of God's expectations. In chapters 4 to 11, uh, you get an exposition of basic principles for a relationship with Yahweh, including those ten basic principles again, the Ten Commandments, which are here repeated. So, for instance, the Sabbath comes here again. And in Deuteronomy 12 to 26, you get another set of instructions for worship and everyday life, which include instructions for the setting up of one sanctuary uh, and for the setting up of the monarchy of kingship. Uh, they include what to do when, with the problem of debt and people getting into servitude, how to observe the three festivals, and the importance of not boiling a kid goat in its mother's milk. Uh, and another exposition of what will be the fruit of obedience and disobedience. Now this is all before the people are in the promised land and they've had chance to do most of those things. This is weird. Uh, what, what makes sense in terms of where that stuff might have come from? Now the obvious uh, and traditional view is uh, all these command, commands came from Moses over the same period. But, but as I say, that, that's odd. Why, why would Moses, why would God or Moses have three runs at explaining how to observe the uh, pilgrim festivals before you've ever, you're in a position to observe them at all? It makes more sense to think uh, in terms of one of those, one of those other explanations um, that, uh, that I've put underneath the possibility that they all came from Moses. Uh, that the various sets of commands uh, have varied origin. For instance, maybe they came from different periods in Israel's history and they've been put together within the Torah. Or maybe they came from different groups of people. Some of them are more the kind of stuff that um, would uh, interest and be useful to priests, the stuff about how to offer sacrifices and so on. Others of them might, uh, or do correspond more to the teaching of prophets, the kind of um, priorities that prophets have. Or maybe they came from different places, so that some of them were a version from Ephraim, from the northern kingdom of God's expectations, and some a version from Judah. Uh, or some of them were generated, formulated in the exile in Babylon, uh, and some of them were formulated back in Judah by people who weren't in exile. It, it would make more sense for there to be various sets of um, expressions of Yahweh's will, all of them God-given, all of them inspired by the Holy Spirit, 
but, but given in different contexts, um, corresponding to the needs of different groups, different historical contexts, social contexts, geographical contexts, and then put together in the Torah, then to think of all of them being given uh, in that context before the people got into, into the Promised Land, where most of them weren't up for implementation at all. But if that's the case, why did they, all, why did they get put back in the Torah? Why not um, set them in the context of the story as God actually gave the people, gave them to the people in different contexts? And there might be various answers to that question. Uh, one is to compare um, the way uh, what, what we know has happened with other uh, parts of Scripture. Uh, if you've got a King James Bible, then when you come to read Hebrews, it tells you at the top that this is the epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Hebrews. But it doesn't say that in the actual Greek text, and thus it doesn't say that in modern translations. So why did Paul's name come to be at the top of Hebrews? Because of a dynamic that goes something like this, I think, uh, that people were grasped by that epistle. They knew they'd heard the word of God there. They knew it expanded powerfully uh, for them, and a God-given understanding, a spirit-inspired understanding of what Jesus was about, and so on. Uh, but then, when you've been grasped by something like that, and you know that it's God's word, we apparently have a human instinct to want to attribute it to somebody. It, mu it must have been written by somebody really important like Paul, otherwise it wouldn't be so great, as it were, is the, is the kind of logic. Uh, so a letter like Hebrews gains authority because people hear God's word here. Then it gets attributed to an appropriate author. It's not that it has authority because of who wrote it, which is illogical, really. It's that, it, it's that something is said about who wrote it because you uh, know that it has authority. That's one reason, one bit of kind of logic uh, that, that can lead to uh, attributing uh, something to somebody significant. Uh, another bit of the logic is that whereas when I write a book I want my name on the spine, in a traditional society, you don't want to claim things as your own, uh, but you know that you learn so much from other people. Um, and you want to acknowledge the person who was your inspiration. So uh, Moses is the inspiration of all the stuff in the Torah. The people who were led by God to formulate what God's expectations were of them in centuries later uh, knew that, as it were, Moses was their inspiration. And so they attribute them. They put them into Moses' book. Uh, rather than wanting to have their own name on the spine. And another significance of doing that is that attributing them to the beginning of Israel's history, and to Moses in particular, signifies the conviction that they represent the working out of the true faith of Israel. This really is Exodus faith. This really is Mosaic faith. Okay, it came, uh, it was actually formulated two or three centuries later, but it's still an exposition of the kind of thing that Moses would say if he were here now, and the kind of implications that us being the Exodus people um, have for now. Now, no, now that's all theory. None of, there's no evidence for any of that. Uh, but, but, uh, but at least uh, it starts to make sense of the um, strange nature, nature of the data. That is, what you have in these sets um, of instructions in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy is the same subjects keep, keep being taught in ways that um, sometimes don't relate to the present situation in the slightest. Like when Deuteronomy tells you about what to do about appointing a king, which they're not going to do for several centuries, 
and how to tell false prophets from true prophets, which they're not going to do for several centuries after that. Um, uh, the, an understanding that sees God as inspiring the generation of uh, the generating of instructions like this over the centuries, um, and then people expressing the, the awareness that this is what Moses would say um, if he were here now under God's inspiration, and making them put it back into the Torah. That's at least it seems to me um, explain accounts satisfactorily for the nature of the data in the way that the idea that Moses generated it all himself uh, doesn't. Um, over the page on page 93, uh, here's a kind of another um, run at that in terms of uh, what the implications might be. Uh, at the top of page 93, where it says the origin of the teaching of the, of, uh, in the Torah, number two, uh, there, first of all, are the, uh, the four uh, main blocks of teaching and the way in which they're often described in the, in the textbooks. So Exodus 20 to 24 and 32 to 34 is the book of the covenant. It's associated with the covenant making at Sinai. Um, the, uh, the other laws in Leviticus, the account about how to build the wilderness sanctuary and the building of it, and the instructions in Leviticus about how to offer sacrifice and about cleanness and uncleanness and so on, and some of the stuff in Numbers. That's the kind of stuff that priests um, need, that, that tells priests how to uh, do their job, gives the background to the nature of their ministry. So that's often referred to as the priestly law. Leviticus 19 to 26 is that spelling out of what it means for Yahweh to be the Holy One. So it's the holiness law, the holiness code. Uh, and then Deuteronomy is the Deuteronomic law, which is not a very um, uh, adventurous way, way to describe it, original way to describe it, but that's it. So where did it come from? The pre-modern view would be that Moses received the teaching in Exodus on top of Sinai. Moses received the teaching in Leviticus through the beginning of Numbers at the bottom of Sinai. Moses received the teaching in Numbers 11 to, 20, to 36 on the way from Sinai. And Moses gave the sermon in Deuteronomy on the edge of the promised land. And that fits with the way in which there are lots of references in these books to Moses' said, um, and references in the New Testament to, to Moses. But the question, as I suggested, is why would God want to keep repeating things like that, especially when they weren't yet due for, when they weren't yet due for implementing? So here are two examples of modern views of how this stuff um, came into existence. Uh, there's um, a, a, a simplish, a simple, simple, simplish, there isn't such a word, is there? There's a fairly simple uh, view that partly follows the view of an Israeli scholar called Israel Kanol uh, in a book called The Sanctuary of Silence. That the teaching in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, comes from Moses at Sinai. That, the, that Exodus 21 to 24 and 34 comes from the period between Joshua and David, the judges period that Leviticus 1 to 18 and some of Numbers come from the period between David and Isaiah. Uh, Leviticus 19 to 26 and some other of Numbers comes from between Isaiah and Jeremiah. The Deuteronomy comes from the period of Jeremiah. And then there's a more traditional modern view. I'm not sure whether traditional modern is a, what do you call those things? A, I'm sorry? An oxymoron, but, um, but even if it is an oxymoron, it's true. 
I mean, it's, it, it's a fair description in the sense that this description, which, I've, um, which I'm giving you in particular from Frank Kruseman's book, The Torah, um, is a more, a more usual uh, critical view, um, is that the book of the covenant, the stuff in, Ex in Exodus 22-34, uh, comes from the 8th century, the time of Hezekiah. The Deuteronomy comes from the 7th century, from Josiah, uh, the time of Josiah. Uh, and the priestly and the holiness laws come from the exile or afterwards, time of Ezra. Note that the one thing that those two modern views have got in common is that Deuteronomy comes from the 7th century, the time of Jeremiah, the time of Josiah. When I talked about JDP uh, a week or two ago, um, I suggested to you uh, that, that the dating of, of Deuteronomy in the time of King Josiah, when they found this scroll, when they were remodeling in the temple, uh, in the time of Jeremiah, that, that's, the, that's the hinge point uh, around which theories of the origin uh, of the Pentateuch, um, upon which they hang. Uh, and it's significant that those two very, very different views of Canal and Kruseman both make that assumption um, that, that the background of Deuteronomy is in the time of um, the time of Josiah or the time of Jeremiah. In every other respect, they're totally different, but that's the one thing they've got in common. Uh, once then you question the linkage of Deuteronomy with Josiah and Jeremiah, the, the whole all the edifices fall down. Uh, which takes you into the into the postmodern view, which is to say, it's clear enough that there are several collections of teaching, and that most of them don't go back to Moses. We can assume that they represent ways God guided the people over the centuries. But nobody is ever going to agree on when they were produced, so there's no point worrying about that too much. We can still learn things by comparing, comparing them with each other. That is, you can look at the way that Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy um, handle different issues like the question about debt and servitude, and by comparing them with each other, you can discover things, even if you can't be sure what century each of them belongs to. And, and that's something that you will be doing in the homework uh, for Wednesday, I think, isn't it? Somebody's done it, and I saw... Is it, is it the homework for Wednesday? Homework 13. Um, yes, that's right. Where, where you'll be looking at the parallel regulations about some different topics. Um, and, uh, and, I'm, and, and I'm inviting you to, to see what you learn by doing the comparison and trying to guess at why some topics uh, would be handed, uh, handled in a certain way in Exodus and a different way in Leviticus. Or why certain topics are only handled in Deuteronomy and don't appear in the other books at all. You can learn things by doing that comparison, uh, even if you can't, uh, even if we can't be sure, as I think we can't, um, which particular context each of the books belongs to. Um, okay, uh, anybody want to ask anything on that? Hello? Uh, because, uh, on the one hand, the, um, the kind of thing that Josiah did, why aren't you coming out? Come out. Is it because I switched you off? Oh, no, you're coming out. Thank you. Um, because uh, the, the kind of things that Josiah did, when you compare them with, the, uh, with Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, correspond substantially to Deuteronomy 
better more than to any, any of the other two. And then because uh, if you look uh, for indications elsewhere when people did the kind of things that, that you find in Deuteronomy, I mean obey Deuteronomy, you find them after that time, but you don't find them before that time. So, um, I mean, this may be adding two and two and making 16, uh, but it looks as if nobody knew Deuteronomy before that time. Everybody, people knew it, got to know it in Josiah's time, and they knew it afterwards. Right? So, like, they would have found something that would have then been reformulated into well, Deuteronomy as... Well, oh, well, okay, right that... that that, that, that before, um, that, that say if you're living um, in Elijah's day, you hadn't got Deuteronomy, but you had got the laws, those law, the laws in Exodus that you were looking at for today. Uh, and so, but then what happened in the context of um, the development of the monarchy and urbanization and issues like that was that those laws, um, which let's for the sake of argument assume that those laws in Exodus have a background in the period soon after um, Moses' day, soon after Joshua's day, um, they, is, they correspond to uh, a traditional um, agricultural society without kings, um, without prophets, uh, non-urbanized, and so on. Obviously, then, when you're in a situation a couple of centuries later, uh, when, you, when you become a monarchy, when there are prophets, um, when you become a much more urban society, you, you need God's instructions to be tweaked to be slanted in order to deal with the different social context. Uh, and, and maybe particularly uh, in a context in which you, these wretched kings are leading you into idolatry and things like that, then you need uh, to, be, to have it made more explicit that, uh, about what God's expectations, expectations are that contrast with the way that the leadership is actually leading the nation. So what Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy does is, is rework um, the, the, the um, exposition of God's expectations that you've got in Exodus in order to speak to that different context. Does that help? Does that help to, to respond to the question? Yeah. Yes. I, I mean, I, I guess I understand that. I was thinking more of just that detail of that Josiah found something. Right. So it would have already been written it, it, uh, well, yeah, it might have been written. I mean, one, one possible uh, scenario um, is that, the, uh, the, 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 for half a century before Josiah's day, uh, the, the nation has been led by King Manasseh, who led them all into apostasy. Uh, and, and that Deuteronomy is a writing up of what God's expectations are, um, which, which expresses the opposite to what Manasseh actually did. Um, and which, well, we don't know how it came to be, how it came to be in the temple, but somehow it came to be in the temple, and that's how, which is why Josiah found it there. Um, what I want to do to you now, what I want to do now, is to play a, a chunk of a lecture, uh, which was given in our seminary in in England, um, by Walter Brueggemann, whose name you may know, who is the greatest. Um, uh, Old Testament theologian in the world, and is of course um, an American. What well, I mean, not just the greatest American Old Testament theologian, but the greatest American, the greatest theologian in the Old Testament theologian in the world. Um, 
And uh, I'm going to play a bit of this, um, this talk that he gave in our seminary in England um, today and a bit more on Wednesday or next Monday, I can't remember. Now, this bit is about the relationship between um, covenant uh, and grace and law, if I manage to get it to play. Uh, can anybody come and rescue me? ...to have the Bible ah, entrusted I've to us myself, as nearly. a resident interpreter. Uh, what has been on my... Shut up. John wrote me about these matters and I suggested a date. I had no idea how... Uh, what has been on my mind as I've tried to prepare for this is that uh, those of you who are headed for ministry and ordination are entrusted with many things in the church, but how uncommon and extraordinary it is to be entrusted as the kind of resident interpreter of scripture. And uh, what I have to say may bear primarily upon my perception of the situation in the United States and not in Britain, but you can make some translations where they are appropriate. So I want to start out by uh, trying to set the problem as I perceive it uh, on the one hand with a serious view of scripture and on the other hand with a comment on what I perceive our ministerial situation to be. To ask what it means to have the Bible entrusted to us as the resident interpreter, by which I do not mean that we have a monopoly on interpretation, I particularly went back to look at some poignant words from Bart and Buber and there may be more important, more recent words, but these always ring for me. On the one hand, Bart said in his essay, The Strange New World Within the Bible, that modern people, by which he means sort of disillusioned liberals, <laughs> uh, reach and receive the highest answer in the Bible, and that answer is a new world the world of God. Now, what Bart understood so well is that one ought not to excessively accommodate the Bible to the rationality and consciousness of the world, but one needs to let the Bible have its own awkward, affrontive say. And Martin Buber, in a kind of a parallel statement, said, the man of today, and he uses uh, exclusive language, people of today have no access to sure and solid faith, but they must face the book with a new attitude 
must yield to it withholding nothing of his being and let whatever will occur happen between himself and the Bible. He holds himself open in order to understand the situation fully. We must picture for ourselves the complete chasm between the scriptures and the man of today. And then Buber goes on to say, as Bart says in his essay, that what we're dealing with is not history or literature or morals or ethics, but what we are finally dealing with is indeed revelation. Now, I am not a supernaturalist, so that's not how, not how I think about authority and revelation. But let me take Bart and Buber's statements and juxtapose them to what I understand to be the pathology of the Western human community. And my sense is that what is lacking among us is a summoning community that has the authority to tell us who we are, a compelling tradition that can require anything of us, and an available future. I want to suggest that the strange new world of the Bible mediates to us precisely a summoning community, a compelling tradition, and an available future. And I want to suggest that we and the people with whom we minister, by and large, lack any sense of the power that is lacking in our lives when we don't have these things. So what are we left with? We and the people with whom we minister, I think, arrive at an isolated sense of self in which we are technical positivistic agents who live in a world that we must make and guard, that we are forced to produce in order to evidence our worth, and if we don't produce, we don't have any worth. I think that living in that kind of a world makes us subject to brutal ideologies, and at least in the United States, they are the ideologies of militarism and consumerism. And I did read your election return, so I don't think it's so alien. <laughs> And people who end their lives isolated, forced to produce, subject to ideology, I believe finally are fated to endless despair and anxiety and greed. Now that's a very quick uh, labeling of things, and we can talk about that if you want to. I mean to suggest then that the task of ministry is to make available this other world of community, tradition, and future that is a cure and a healing for the place where we are trapped in ideologies that lead us to despair and anxiety and greed. So uh, what I want to do then is to try to explicate four facets of biblical faith that I believe are germane to trying to move in the presence of this pathology. I'm not asking you to vote to th whether you think that's a correct diagnosis, but we'll talk about that later if you want to. So these four points. First, 
that the basic alternative to this technical isolated self or its counterpart, a terribly frightened conformity, that's all a part of the same package, is a covenantal perception of reality in which life is understood in dangerous free categories of relationships. Now that's not new to you, but I simply invite you to reflect for a moment on how radical and dangerous and subversive and odd it is to perceive the world in covenantal categories. Of late, in Old Testament scholarship, covenant has taken a terrible beating uh, because of earlier excesses. And I don't want to be caught defending Eichrode or Mendenhall or any of those people. I think that uh, we have much to learn from all of that. But I am not a pain covenantalist. I used to be, but I've learned in which I reduce everything to that. Rather, I want to talk about covenant following Norman Gottwell's sociological work in which he argues that covenant is not simply an idea or a concept, but it is a, a model of social life that is alternative to a hierarchical, manipul manipulative, monopolistic, authoritarian, stratified community relationships. Now that's a, that's a big mouthful, but I imagine you know that Gottwald has argued that the introduction of covenant in Israel's early faith really was an incredible social revolution. The fundamental given of biblical faith articulated by Moses in Exodus and Sinai, is that the God of Israel permits new modes of social power, invites to a new sense of self in relationship to others, and articulates a radically new disclosure of God. Social power self in relationship and character of God. And I believe the pastors I know have a terribly difficult time articulating that alternative because it is, it is epistemologically outside our common frame of reference. And I submit that the clue to understanding covenant as a way of organizing social power is that the strong agree to have their life shaped and largely determined by the character of the weak. Applied to theology, that means that at, in Exodus and Sinai, the God of Israel determined that God's own life would be at the disposal of the faith of Israel. And I haven't any idea how you would ever articulate that in systematic theology, and that's one of the great blessings of being a scripture scholar is that you don't have to worry about those things. Blindly <laughs> <laughs> recite the creed, and then you come back to do this dangerous work. 
<laughs> in the, I am a member of the United Church of Christ, and in the United Church of Christ in the United States, which is kind of spacey liberalism, uh, we use the word covenant for almost everything, but what we usually mean when we say it is that we are entering into a social contract uh, that serves both our self-interests. That's not what covenant's about. <laughs> covenant is about being vulnerably available for the other party. And the amazing thing about that affirmation in the Bible is that it's not a law or a requirement, but it is the news of how to live freely. It obviously leads to the cause <coughs> Covenant is a paradigm of self-perception. That is, there is a doctrine of personhood in this notion of the covenant. And that notion of selfhood can only be carried by narrative. That means that the pastors of the church, in my judgment, must avoid too much proposition or formulation of truth and instead must simply tell stories. Because at the heart of this understanding of selfhood are surprising inversions and transformations that are logically unacceptable. And therefore we must find a mode of speech that is not excessively disciplined by logic but the church has always lived when it is faithful and strong by telling stories of inversions of the dead being raised and all of those other things that Jesus tells John in Luke 7 and what these stories are regularly about is to say that my life has been acted upon for healing in ways that I do not understand by those who have been there before me. What these stories are about is to say that our life is in relationships and we cannot understand our life in terms of autonomy. Now there is a seed in that to dispose of Thatcherism. I do not know whether it is true in Britain, but in the United States, very much pastoral care has been reduced to psychologies of autonomy, in which the self is understood as an isolated unit and has to rummage around in the self to find health and healing. There is now an important move in pastoral care at its interface with psychology to suggest that health never comes by that kind of psychological rumination, but it comes by articulating and laying hold on stories where we have been acted upon and transformed by those outside ourselves. Finally, these two points about covenant. First, that covenant is always concerned at the same time with legitimated structure and with embraced pain. I've uh, 
talked about that in a couple CDQ articles. And covenant is always perverted if you fall out on either side of that. That is, that covenant has to do with ordered, disciplined relationships in structure and with the taking seriously of pain that always calls those structures into question. Or finally, to say it this way, that covenant is always conditional and unconditional. Now, many of us who have been arguing for a long time that the David covenant is unconditional and the Moses covenant is conditional, I think that's right and defensible. But we don't ever live that way. The way we live is every day to be tracking it both conditional and unconditional. My paradigm for that, my son is here today, but he's now 21, so I can do this. But my paradigm for that is that everybody who has a teenage son or daughter, 16, 17, 18, who always promised that they would be home at 12.30 and come in at 3, <laughs> know about conditional and unconditional. Now, if you have two parents who are both awake when they come in, you can handle it because one of them can be the legitimation of structure, the other one can be the embrace of pain. One of you can say, where have you been? And the other one can say, I'm so glad you're home. But my wife always sleeps. <laughs> so I always have to say, I'm so glad you're home safe, and where have you been? And then it becomes a strategic question of which one do you say last, <laughs> loudly. <laughs> in my regular experience with John and his brother is that I would say that, then he would slam his door and I would slam mine, and then I would wait in the darkness for him to come and apologize, which of course he never did. <laughs> And then I would go to apologize to him, and he would be asleep. <laughs> now, you see, the people with whom you minister in bourgeois society want it one way or the other. They want a religion and a God who will say, where have you been, or I'm so glad you're home. The way we divide that up is that God says, where have you been? And Jesus says, I'm so glad you're home. But that's... <laughs> but what biblical faith understands so well is that all serious relationships live in that tension and it is always unpredictable about which way it will tilt. And God is always freshly deciding which way to face us on any, in any given moment. And so I suggest that covenanting in terms of pastoral care has to do with permitting people to live in that danger zone in which you do not know which one of these responses will be the last one because it is precisely in that danger zone that we become God's real partners.
I don't know for sure what to make of Job 42, that kind of prose ending. But it's so wonderful after these um, pious, right-minded friends have their say, in the last prose section, God says, uh, tell those friends to keep quiet, I am so bored with them. <laughs> but tell Job that if he prays for them, I will listen to Job, because Job is my kind of a guy. <laughs> Covenantal living is very dangerous. And the ideologies in which all of us are enmeshed want to dispose of the danger. Second point, let me say that Isaiah, I'll, um, I'll play another bit of a ch chunk of that next week, but I think his, <clears throat> his exposition there of the nature of covenant and the nature of relationship is really important because my experience is that, that we want uh, to have it one way or the other. We want to know that God works by these rules. We can do the right thing, we can press the right button, then it works. Um, or alternatively, we want to do what we like and know we can get away with anything. They're, again, the, exactly the same issues as Paul handles in Romans. Um, and in any real relationship, it's not like that. Um, and uh, the way he talks about God's um, making himself vulnerable, covenant involves uh, making yourself vulnerable to the other person. And that includes God making himself vulnerable to, to us. Links with that way, that, the, the, that thing that the Torah makes clear, which several, several of you picked up in, your post, in postings, um, about it wasn't God's idea that we should offer sacrifices. It was ours. We asked for sacrifices. Cain and Abel invented sacrifice. Uh, and God said, okay then. Um, and then gave some rules, as it were, whereby it would work. But it was, it was Cain and Abel's idea. It's um, as it would eventually be David's idea um, to build a temple. And God said, don't care so much for temples, but okay. If you want a temple, I'll come there. Um, or, uh, or how it was Israel's idea to want to have kings. And God said, well, I liked being king. But okay, if you insist on having a king, here are the rules for kingship. Here is God, all the way through the story, making himself vulnerable to his people and something that he uh, carries on doing. Several people asked, uh, were, were kind of puzzled about the, how it could be that if the laws were not... Um, how were these laws enforced? Uh, actually, it's true about Hammurabi as well. It's true about the Exodus Code. Uh, on the presupposition that there were laws. But they aren't laws. It's more, as it were, God saying, this is how I want you to live. But, um, but there, there isn't a lightning bolt from heaven comes down uh, every time you disobey. It's not that kind of relationship. Now, God is capable of doing that from time to time. Um, God has to decide when, when, when a moment comes uh, to come down like a ton of bricks on Israel, and does that from time to time, and and we can never we can never assume that won't happen. But the um, the relationship between God and Israel isn't a legal one, um, in which keep doing the right thing and it works out. Do the wrong thing immediately, um, the, the 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 red lights are flashing behind you and you're in jail. 
It's not like that. It's, it's a covenantal relationship. Okay, go away for 20 minutes and uh, we'll look some more at some of that stuff after the break. <laughs>